Amen. Uh, what an amazing time of worship. Amen. Uh, there is nothing greater, I, I really do believe this, uh, than gathering with God's people and lifting up the name of Christ. Um, I just, there's something about just gathering together with the redeemed, people that knew and that know their sin, that know their brokenness, but also know the life-changing power of Christ's gospel. There's something about gathering together with a group of people who say, you know what, I was once lost and undone in my sin, but now I've received this grace. And it's not me that is living this life any longer. It is Christ in me living this life. And now I get to shout and sing and praise the Savior that was crucified for me. There's something about gathering together with God's people and worshiping. And I know that you know, you've heard it said before, you know, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. Uh, being a Christian literally means submitting your life to Christ in, a, in an act of obedience, following Christ as Savior. I've, I've repented of my sins. I've received Christ as my Savior, and now I live for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church to do that, but I'll, I'll guarantee you something, not on my opinion, but the word of God, that a, a Christian that continually avoids the gathering of God's people for the act of worship and growth through the preaching and teaching of God's word will be a Christian that will struggle in their Christian walk. Will be a Christian that is, is living defeated because guess what? In this world, we're hearing a lot of things about what we're supposed to think, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act, what we're really supposed to prioritize. That it's not about these things that the Bible makes it about. It's about my kingdom. It's about my finances, about my success. It's about my convenience and my happiness. And the more we hear that, we start to think that's what we need to live for. But man, when we gather as God's people and we get into God's word and we start realizing there's so much more to life than that. John 10 says that we are called to live the abundant life. And the abundant life has nothing to do with what's in your checking account. There's nothing to do with what's in your driveway. Nothing to do with, with what you live in as far as a home. Yeah, you can make your life about those things, but I guarantee you, you'll end this life looking back, thinking I wasted a lot of energy over things that I really didn't need. But man, when we invest in the things of Christ and we realize how great he is and he begins to show himself to us through his word as we gather together, and then we'll start to realize what this life is really all about. And you know what? When the blessings come, when the, when the things that God provides are blessings and we can enjoy those things from what we drive to what we live in and all those things in between, we can enjoy those as great blessings, but we realize that's not what we're living for. We're living for Christ. And so I'm so thankful for a place that I could come and worship with you and be encouraged in the things of the Lord this morning. Uh, what an amazing song that Jeff sang this morning as well. Um, there is, there's freedom in Christ. For many and all addictions, there is no addiction that he cannot get you out of, that he will not give you the victory over. And so thank you to Jeff for singing that amazing song. And this morning, and none of that was in my notes, by the way, so it's 11.07, so buckle up, because here we go, okay? That was all free. It is all free. Um, this morning, we're finishing up the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we've been, this is our fourth week in Mark, and we've been journeying through the gospel, kind of really just picking a couple key places to look at the gospel of Mark. And so uh, this morning, we're going to finish that up. And so the first two weeks, we talked about a very important question. Who is Jesus? 
And see, that's a question that everyone in this room, watching online or here in person, you have to answer that question. You may not want to answer that question, but you have to answer that question for yourself. Who is Jesus? You see, for you, is he a great teacher, a great prophet, a moral person that taught us some really good ways to live? Was he just some person in the Bible, some fictional character that really didn't exist? Or is he God himself incarnate, the son of God, Jesus Christ, the savior? You see, who is Jesus for you? And we took two weeks and we talked about that. Now, Mark's gospel in chapter one, verse one, we're not going to read it again, but he establishes very clearly who Jesus is. And he says he is the son of God. It is his gospel we preach because he is the savior. And then Mark begins to expand on why that is. And we spent two weeks understanding from God's word that he is the son of God, God himself. And this is clear from gospel, the gospel of Mark. We see this in his teaching or his words and his miracles or his works. So when you read through the gospel of Mark and you read through all the gospel accounts, you see his teaching, his words, and his works or his miracles. And those two things affirm Mark 1.1. Mark says, hey, he is the son of God, the savior, God himself. And then he unpacks the beginning of the ministry of Christ through his baptism. Again, which we're going to celebrate baptism this morning. Through the temptation in the wilderness where he went out in the wilderness and he was tempted. And he passed that temptation, stood on the submission of the father. Did not submit to the temptations that were laid before him. And then he began what we call his earthly ministry. And this is where he began to teach and perform so many amazing things. And the Bible is amazing that says that every time he would teach, the crowd was astonished. They were in awe. And one of the main reasons they were in awe of his teaching is because he taught with, the Bible says, authority. See, other scribes and rabbis, they would teach the, the word of God, but they would quote other rabbis and other scholars and other scribes. They would never teach with their own authority. It'd be like me teaching something and saying, you know, it's like Pastor Greg says. And then that's somehow where I get some level of authority from. Not that I, I don't know if I would reference that often, but I could, I could go there. Okay. Just kidding, Greg. Yes. His diploma on his wall, it's bigger diploma than, you know, whatever. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Went to a bigger school. Good job. Okay. But, but it'd be like me quoting someone else, which it's fine to quote someone else in in reference to what you're talking about. Right. Like if you're not an expert in a certain field and you're talking about that field and you know you've read so-and-so who's an expert on that field, we do this all the time. We'll quote somebody from that field and say, well, it's like they say. And why do we do that? Because we don't have authority of ourselves to speak to that matter. We've not done all the schooling, all the research, all the work. But this other doctor so-and-so written books on the topic, I can quote that person. And now what I say has a level of authority to it because, oh, well, if so-and-so said it, then somehow now it has more weight. Does it make sense? But when Jesus taught, he didn't have to quote anyone else. He didn't have to say it's like so-and-so says. He says, this is the word of God. And he declared the very words. I mean, could you imagine hearing the word of God from God himself in the person of Christ. He says, this is the kingdom of God. This is what God asks of you. This is the greatest commandment. Love God, paraphrasing, with all of you and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just me saying, this is God.
God saying these things, and they were in awe. We've never heard anyone teach like this, they would say. Then he would affirm his teaching, affirm his deity by performing miracles that no one had ever seen before. And as that was happening, there was a couple different responses from the crowds. Some people loved the handouts. When he fed the 5,000, people loved that. And they followed him around. Hey, give us more food. Give us more food. Give us more. Sometimes it was, we, you're a really good magician. Do more tricks, Jesus. Perform for us, Jesus. We, we're entertained by this. Some, there was criticism. Who do you think you are to do this and say those things? That criticism usually came from the religious who liked their power and their control. Jesus undermined that. They didn't care for that too much. But then there were those that were actually intrigued and, and listened. And then they believed. You see, there's, there's a mixture of a response among the teaching and works of Christ. And why I think this is so important to understand is because we see the same thing today, do we not? I mean, the words of Christ are given. Some mock. Some are criticizing. Some think it's cool. Okay, yeah, he gives me good things. I'm okay with that. He makes me feel good sometimes in things he says. I don't like that or that that he says, but I like this part over here. So we pick and choose. But sometimes the words of Christ are proclaimed. The spirit of God begins to work. I realize my sin and I confess my sins, believing Mark 1, 1, that he is the son of God. And my whole life has changed. You see, that same response is amongst crowds today. And so the question we have to ask is, not only who is Jesus for you, but how are you responding to the teachings of Christ? When you hear the words of Christ, how do you respond? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh huh. Wait, what did he do? I don't believe that. He walked on water? Nope. He raised someone from the dead? Can't happen. Restored sight? Person that was lame that can't walk, allowed him to walk? Nope, don't believe it. Okay. That's, that's your response. And God will give you that freedom to respond that way. But as we've all learned, those of us that are older, maybe a little later on in years, we are free to make a choice, are we not? You can choose how you want to respond. But what's also true is you are then liable for the consequence of that choice. You can say you don't believe. It's all fairy tales and wishful thinking. That's fine. God will give you the freedom to do that. But then one day, as the Bible says, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And we will stand before him. And we will not be judged our good and bad person. Did we do enough things? Did we go to church enough? Did we write enough tithe checks? Again, we'll take your tithe checks. Feel free to give those. That's not going to get you into heaven. Baptism this morning, we're celebrating the, the wonder of baptism as somebody that has placed their faith and trust in Christ. As Bella enters those baptism waters, it's not saving her. That's already done. She is a child of the king because she's confessed her sins and received Christ. This is her saying, I want to be a follower of Christ. I am, I am confessing my faith in Christ in baptism. That's a wonderful thing. But that's not going to get her into heaven because she's baptized. You see, we think these things. God's not going to judge us on those things. There's one thing that will guarantee you eternal life or send you into an eternity of torment. Not my words, not... The Baptist denomination's words, not, no, it's Jesus' words. 
there's two paths, one that leads to eternal life and one that leads to destruction. And there's one that's really wide and it's broad. And many there be that are on that path to destruction. That's leading them to a place called hell. But there's this narrow road. And, and there's these, those that will place their faith and trust in Christ and they'll find the narrow road and that will lead to eternal life. And so not only who is Jesus, but what will you do with Jesus' teachings? How will you respond? Last week, we discovered, as we continue through our series here, and again, if you missed any of it, I would encourage you to go online on our app. You can access all the sermons on there as well. But last week, we discovered that when people were unable to figure Jesus out and how it could be that he was the Messiah, they were offended at him, the Bible says. They were scandalized at him. And they rejected him. And what's crazy about that is that that was in Jesus' hometown, Matthew chapter 6. Their lack of faith led Jesus to choose to limit his works among them. And yet it still says he healed a few sick. They, they didn't have any faith. They wanted him to leave. They were offended at him. They criticized him. They mocked him. And yet he still, because he's so good and gracious, he had to move and he had to work. So again... As we wrap up this series, I want to draw our attentions to another powerful moment that took place towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you need a Bible, feel free to use one of those. If you're using one of those, you can just turn to page 710. So if you're using a Bible provided, we're going to go to page 710. Uh, if you're not, I have no idea what page Mark 14 is on for you. Maybe close to that neighborhood. So good luck. I don't uh, try. I, I don't know. Mark 14. And we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go ahead and read the first nine verses of Mark 14. And then we're going to kind of break apart what we see here. So Mark chapter 14 and verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft or trickery and put him to death, this being Jesus. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. So they're, they're trying to be, you know, they want to kill Jesus. And they want to kind of trick him in a way that they can catch him and, and kill him. But let's not do it so the people freak out. Like, let's kind of make sure we do this on the, on, the, on the quiet side. We don't want to draw too much attention. It's so good that the followers of God, those that were supposed to be leading the nation of Israel, are so aware of the need to kill Jesus, but do it quietly. And then we go on to verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence, not Mike Pence, the money, the monetary value. So for 300 pence and had been given to the poor and they murmured against her. There's a key they were going to break apart. The complaint was made and it says, and they murmured against her. Goes on in verse 6, and Jesus said, Let her alone, why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me, 
For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Let's pray. Father, in the reading of your word, we ask that you would be glorified. We ask, Lord, that as we take time to be attentive to your word, we, we, we want to give it all due diligence. We want to be, if you would, Lord, students of your word right now. We want to learn. We want to grow. Lord, maybe there's somebody in this room that has read this account multiple times. And praise God for that. The familiarity with the story can draw us to worship you in many ways. But I pray, Lord, also that there's sometimes a, a habit when we read a familiar passage in church, we tend to drift away and think we kind of know what it's talking about. We already know all the applications and we don't really see how it connects with us. I pray that we would avoid that this morning. And I pray that we would realize that you have something for everyone in this room. They're sitting here, Lord, not by chance, but by your sovereign plan and purpose. You knew before the foundations of the world were led, laid who would be sitting in this room. And so I pray that they would receive what you have for them. I pray that I would not hinder or, or get in the way of what you want to do this morning, Lord, but that you'd speak through me and my weakness. And we love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought it was a good idea to mow the grass yesterday. Apparently not so much. So if I'm sniffling up here, just pretend you don't hear it. This passage is amazing. Uh, it's one of the most amazing moments to me in the ministry of Christ. And many of us have heard or read this account before. Maybe even heard the song about the alabaster box of ointment. This morning I want to look at the fact that Jesus not only received the gift, but he received the one offering the gift. He received her just as she was. And I, I hope that's not lost on us today. He received her just as she was, and he received her gift just as it was. And I want to ask you, and I want you to be considering for yourself how that can encourage you in your journey with Christ or your relationship with Christ today. So the anointing at Bethany, that's what this passage is referred to as, the anointing at Bethany. And so there's a lot of great things happening here in this passage. So we're going to talk about the uniqueness of this passage, the kind of the unique aspects of this and break it apart before we move into some application. So Mark opens with the tensions that are rising around Jesus and the religious leaders, namely the scribes and the chief priests. There's some tension here. They're not liking what Jesus has been teaching. It's been growing for a couple of years. We're getting towards the end of his earthly ministry. Following this in the gospel of Mark, you're going to read about the arrest of or the last supper, then the arrest of Christ, the trial of Christ, which really wasn't a trial. It was a mockery again, done at night, done at secret, trying to keep the crowds away. I'm going to read about Peter denying Christ, right? Great Peter. Oh, I'll die with you, Lord. And a little teenage girl by a fire says, hey, you sound like one of those Galileans. Aren't you with Jesus? And he completely denies Christ, curses Christ, says, I don't know him. Then we're going to read about the death of Christ. And when you read the death of Christ, we have to step back and go, okay, if I just look at that moment in history, we think God lost. And that the enemy won. But the reality is that when he dies, we know he rises again. I'm going to read of the resurrection and then the calling to go forth and make disciples. It's an amazing end 
of the gospel. But here, before the arrest, before the Last Supper, before all of that's happening, the disciples have been told and made aware that Jesus must suffer these things. Remember, in Mark, he's kind of depicted as the suffering Savior, the one that would suffer and die for our sins. And in this moment, we read, as these tensions are rising, there's this beautiful moment of anointing, this beautiful moment of preparation. The scribes and the religious leaders work together. Again, it's so great that they're coming together as one to work together to do this work of catching Jesus and tricking him in order that they may kill him. Again, they wait for the right moment due to the Passover. They don't want to offend the crowds because, again, the religious were all about the look of religion. We've got to make it look like we're on God's side here. And so their, their tensions are rising, but they're trying to be cautious about this. And it's in this moment of the narrative that Mark breaks or interjects this remarkable account of Jesus being anointed at Bethany at the house of Simon, the, we assume, healed leper. Because if he's a leper and he's currently a leper, he's not having people over his house. He's not even allowed in the city, let alone in a home. And so when he's identified this way, I love this, Simon the leper. And that's what he maybe used to be known as, but now he's been healed by Christ. And I've always loved that because I think about how would we identify ourselves? You don't need to answer out loud. You don't need to raise your hand and give us an option. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But if you had to label yourself, what would you call your, your issue, your sin, the reason you were outcasted or rejected by others? I think we could put some different titles there, couldn't we? But aren't you thankful that God doesn't see you as who you used to be? but he sees you as who you are in Christ. And so in this account of Mark's narrative, he breaks from the narrative and he interjects this beautiful moment. Now, there are some that debate the number of times that Jesus was anointed. If you guys are new with us today, one thing I like to do is give you more than just my opinions on the passage. I want to give you kind of the overall view of what others think, uh, it's different religious scholars and such, and then give you the opportunity to study this on your own. And by God's grace and through the working of the Holy Spirit, as we go to his word, we want him to give us wisdom that only he can give. So there's some debate about the number of times that Jesus was anointed. Some view the accounts in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of John as the same accounts, leaving Luke's account as separate or a different time of anointing. Some view the account of Mark and Matthew as the same accounts, Luke as different and John as different. So depending on what commentary you're reading, depending on what what you're listening to, you may hear someone suggest, if you're in Matthew's gospel, for example, they may refer back to Mark, but they might not refer to John or Luke. Some would lump in Matthew, Mark, and John as all the same account, and then Luke is a separate account. So depending on who you're listening to, you may hear references in that way, just so you know why they are doing that. In Mark's gospel, I would lean toward the interpretation or understanding that this is the same account as recorded in John chapter 12. So if you're taking notes, you can jot that down. John chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 26. And so I would say Mark, Matthew, and John are in agreement of this anointing, so the same one. And then also Luke would be a different anointing, which happens earlier on in the ministry of Christ. This 
according to John 12, we read, would be then Mary is the one doing the anointing. This is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And we know Lazarus because he was dead and Jesus rose him from the dead. Luke 7 records another anointing that again happens much earlier in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus even carries a different response after that anointing than in these accounts. And so in Mark chapter 14, we read that this anointing takes place. But however, in Mark's account, it does not say the name of the person. Again, it says that someone, there came a woman that did this thing. John 12 would tell us that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So why does Mark place this moment here in his gospel? Why does Mark choose to place this moment here when John tells us it actually happened a few days earlier? This anointing happened six days before Passover, so Friday before the triumphal entry, where in Mark's account it happens a little later in the gospel. It is believed that Mark breaks from his narrative in chapter 14, setting the stage for the betrayal of Judas and the arrest of Jesus. He's purposefully using this to contrast the treachery of Judas and the religious with the loyalty and love of Mary. So understand this. Mark's not confused. This is not a contradiction. This is not an issue in scripture. Mark is not trying to give us a chronological order of events. He's unfolding this story so that we'll best understand by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the son of God. And he's unpacking that in different ways. So when he gives us this, it's purposeful that he says, listen, we just read about the scribes and the religious that are wanting to catch Jesus and kill him. And we know after this, we're going to read about Judas betraying him and selling him off to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave or a servant. And in in the middle of that treachery that's going on and the debacle or the, the betrayal and all these things, Mark gives us this little story and he says, but this wasn't all of those who followed Christ. There was one that saw who Jesus really was and loved him and was loyal to him. Again, Matthew and Mark are not attempting to give us a chronological biography of Christ. Merely, they are moving us from the beginning of Christ's ministry to the cross. The alabaster box of ointment is referenced to as spikenard. This is an aromatic oil, and it most likely was from India. It would have cost roughly a year's wage. Let that sink in for a moment. This is so huge. We can't miss this. This oil that was just broken and poured all over Christ's head is worth one year's wage. That's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of value and worth. Some have suggested the jar could have contained somewhere between 12 to 16 ounces of this ointment or oil. Also, the anointing that Jesus received was for death and burial. That's what Jesus says, is it not? He says there towards the end in verse 8 of Mark chapter 14, she hath done what she could. She has come aforehand, so she came before I actually die, to anoint my body to the burying. So what is Jesus again telling us? I'm going to suffer to die, and to be buried. And Mary came in preparation of that. She's really ready to do this. She's ready to give this sacrifice 
on behalf of Christ and his sacrifice. Now, this is something that would have happened normally uh, when the Jews would die. Their bodies would be anointed before being wrapped in the burial cloth or the burial garments. And then also sometimes ointment would be placed in the garments themselves. However, this is not done for criminals. Let that sink in for a moment. If Jesus was a normal rabbi, just, just preaching and teaching, and he died in his old years, he would be anointed and then wrapped in the cloths and then placed in the tomb. But criminals were not afforded this tradition. And so what Mary is doing is coming and offering this as an act of sacrifice. She's coming and wanting to recognize Jesus as not just some criminal who's going to die on a cross, but as Mark 1.1 says, the Son of God, God himself. It's an amazing moment of, of Mary understanding who Jesus really is. Now, maybe she didn't realize all of what was going on. Maybe she didn't really realize all that was going to take place in the coming days. But in that moment, she expressed her love to Christ while he was yet alive. She believed he was the Messiah, the anointed one. That's the interesting thing about this. The word Messiah or the Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, in case you weren't aware of that. Christ means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were positions that were considered anointed positions. Prophet, priest, and king would all be anointed And this anointing was symbolic of the spirit of God coming upon that person to do the work of God in that ministry or position of leadership. But the Christ, the one who would come, the Messiah, was the anointed one, not a anointed one. He was the high priest, Hebrews says, who prays for us. Amen. He is the prophet coming to reveal the very mind of God. John 1.1 says that the word was made flesh. And he is the king. And he's not going to rule one day. He is ruling today over his kingdom. Those that have placed their faith and trust in Christ. He is seated on the right hand of the throne of the Father. And he is enthroned and we worship him as king. You see, Mary was expressing her love to Christ, the anointed one. And in her opinion, nothing was too great for her king. And so let's look at the response. We understand Mary's response. But what about the disciples, those that were gathered together? What about those who were in the room when this took place? What about those that were having the meal? Now, this sounds odd to us. We're picturing a dining room table. We're picturing sitting down, having a nice meal, and someone just randomly walking into the dining room. No introduction. Opening a most likely like a flask or a jar of some kind of this ointment. It says she break it. Most likely it means that she, it would be hard to break these kind of a jars, but most likely she either shook it to get all the oil out, is what she's kind of saying there. I'm getting all of it out. I want every drop out of this jar. So imagine you're sitting at someone's house having a meal. Maybe mac and cheese and hot dogs. I don't know what you're eating. If you come over our house, sometimes it's paper plates, and so it's real fancy. But, but someone comes in and just starts pouring oil all over someone's head, right at the table. John 12 tells us that she actually made it all the way down to his feet, and then she began to wipe his feet with her hair. What would you think? It'd probably be the last time you have dinner at that house, right? You're like, I'm out. Your neighbors are weird. I don't know what's going on, okay? 
But this is not kind of the setting. They're more sitting on a table that's lower to the floor. They're reclined on pillows or something like that. They're kind of sitting on the floor. And this woman comes in in an act of worship, pours this oil over Jesus' head. And it begins to run down his body to her feet. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair as an act of worship because there is nothing too great for Jesus. So what do the disciples respond with? Look at the chapter 14. Look at verse 4. And there were some, I love this, the teaching of Christ, the works of Christ always create different responses. So will the worship of Christ. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, so not only did they have it within themselves, they actually said, why was this waste of the ointment made? How much is it worth? A year's wage. Why'd you waste that? And do you not know how much value you have? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. I love the false piety here. The false religious desire to do the right thing. Why'd you have to pour all of it on him? You could have just poured a little. We could have saved some. Could have sold it and given it to the poor. Imagine all the poor people we could have fed if we would have used that for that purpose instead of wasting it on Jesus. And I know what you're thinking. Who in the world would ever say such a thing? Who would ever dare to question such loyalty and love and worship? Again, before we start throwing those spiritual stones we like to carry around, I'll admit I'm a good stone thrower. I don't like when they come towards me, but I'm good at hitting others with them. Apparently I'm in the wrong church. Nobody else can testify. Okay, that's all right. We're going to keep going. Man, they had those stones locked and loaded. Aren't we good at this? How dare you? Could have been sold and given to the poor. False piety. John 12 tells us that Judas was most likely the one that voiced this concern. We find out in other places he carried the bag. Therefore, he was the treasurer. Therefore, he could skim a little off the top. See, isn't it amazing? Oh, no, no. It's all about the poor, Jesus. It's all about doing for them. The complaint that they had seemed religious in intent, but it really wasn't. The word here for indignation that they had towards her, this actually means they were very displeased. That's actually the translated understanding. Very displeased with her to the point of being furious. They were furious at her. She would waste this on Jesus. They were angry. Think about this. She's worshiping Christ and they're angry. Again, John tells us in John 12 that it was Judas that complained vocally, but it could have been something a few of the disciples thought as that was the oil that was worth so much. We could have used it for so much better. So Judas is the one that spoke out, but maybe as Mark says, they, the disciples, had the same complaint. I like what J. Vernon McGee says about this complaint, and it's in agreement with Jesus in what he says, in his response to their religious piety. He says, if they were sincere, there would be many opportunities to help the poor, and they could avail themselves of those opportunities. 
They were really sincere. This wouldn't really bother them because there's so many opportunities to help the poor. They could have done it at any time. And Jesus says, you have the poor with you always, but me, you don't always have with you. He's saying, I'm going to die. And I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be here in person, in the flesh. And Mary did a good thing because she took advantage of the opportunity. If they had realized who was being anointed, if they had realized what it was for, if they had realized what he was going to do for them and saving them from their sins, their only protest, hear me church, their only protest should have been, as R.C. Sproul puts it, why was her gift so small? And it's hard for me not to get emotional because I think about the cross of Christ and I think about what he did for us. And then he asks us to give to him, to surrender to him our greatest possession. And we hold it with gripped hands. And we think because we go to church and we do a couple good things, we're good. I don't got to give them all of that, do I? He wants your greatest possession. When you think of the sacrifice of Christ, that in a few days after this moment, he would be hanging on a cross for you. What would be the limit of what you would give? How much would be too much to give him in worship? So let's look at Jesus' response as he rebukes this religious piety. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said, let her alone while trouble you her. She hath wrought a good work for me, or I'm sorry, on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do to them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verse 9, this is key. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial to her. Man, that's awesome. The disciples, right, who argue, who's the greatest among us, Jesus? Who's going to sit on your right hand? Who's going to sit on your left? I think it should be me. You got James and John, their mom's coming and asking Jesus, hey, listen, my boys, they're awesome. They should be the best in the disciples. It's pretty great when you got your mom asking Jesus if you can be in charge. I mean, that's, that's next level. They just argued amongst themselves. Peter in his, you know, supposed loyalty to Christ, I'll die with you. He denied. All the disciples fled as Jesus said they would. And yet they're getting on Mary because she dared to waste this ointment on Jesus. And he says, hey, listen, time out. I'm going to honor Mary right now. You see, he gives her honor. She has done a good thing, taking advantage of Jesus being there with them. She anointed him unto burial. She worshiped by giving Jesus possibly the most valuable thing she could have given. This amount of perfume or oil based on the cost, was most likely a fair family heirloom, not her personal, that she just went out and bought it. This was not something somebody would have just went out and bought, like we go out and we buy cologne or perfume from the store. This is something most likely that had intrinsic value. It was a passed down type valuable heirloom. And she chose to give it to Christ as an act of worship. Jesus continues to honor her by saying that her testimony will go, quote, wherever this gospel will be preached. It will be a memorial to her and her sacrifice. 
Now, I have to interject here. So many people in our culture today think that Jesus is anti-woman, that the Bible is anti-woman, that he has no place for women. And I have to tell you, the reality is so much farther from that. You see, Jesus was actually, the Bible says, not a respecter of person because God is not a respecter of persons. What does that mean? And you read James chapter really two, it's clear to us that the reason we shouldn't be a respecter of persons, and what does that mean? That means I show a little favoritism to some people and I don't show favoritism to others. I don't really, I'm not kind to this group of people, but I really like this group of people. The Bible says God is not a respecter of persons. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, was not a respecter of persons. He rebuked many and he encouraged many. And here we see another example of him saying, no, I'm going to honor this woman for what she has done. Jesus nowhere is anti-woman. He's all about his own glory and the glory of God. And using anyone that would place their faith and trust in Christ, he says, I'll use you right where you are. Man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, it's irrelevant. I will use you because you're submitted to me and available. Now watch me show my glory. It's amazing to me the way that he uses men and women throughout Scripture, even in this case. Again, he did not treat some kind and honor some while others he disregarded because they were women or of different social status. You see, he honored Mary for her sacrifice. He also received her gift. She came to Christ. She poured out her gift with an open heart and mind, just as an act of worship. Do you notice that she didn't care about those that were in the room? Do you know she didn't care about what they thought? By the way, she just did this thing and they said audibly, What a waste. Could you imagine if you're Mary? your most valuable family heirloom you just gave to Christ. And the guys in the background, what a waste. But you notice it doesn't change her mindset. She doesn't get rattled. She just continues to worship and Jesus rebukes them and says, hey, leave her alone. By the way, when Jesus says, leave somebody alone, I'd probably leave them alone. When Jesus says she's done a good thing, she's probably done a good thing. Jesus received her and so received her gift. He did not cast it away. He did not reject her, but he accepted it and he commended her. As I said a few moments ago, I don't know if you've been thinking about it or not, but I pray that you have been. Jesus desires us to give him our greatest possession. He wants us to give it to him freely, not out of obligation, but out of love and loyalty. So we have to pause for a second and ask ourselves a question. Many questions this series. Who is Jesus? What do we do with his teaching? And what is your greatest possession? Like, what is the thing that you have that you can give to Christ that no one else can give? That no one else has. And when you give it, it's from your hearts with love. And it's a way that you're going to honor and worship him as the Savior who's going to die. In Mary's case, who is going to die. In our case, who has died and rose again for our sins. So what is the one thing you have that no one else can give Jesus that you can give him? The answer is so simple. You've probably already thought of it. You're your greatest possession you can give to Christ. See, he doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your stuff. What Jesus really wants is you. And Romans 12 says the greatest sacrifice we can make is to lay ourselves before him and say, I am yours. My life is yours. See, when you give him your life, 
your finances, your relationships, the stuff will fall right in line. The reality is God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your stuff. But he wants you. And when you give him all of you, and not because you think it's going to gain you salvation or gain you heaven. As a, Look, I surrendered all. Now you've got to give me salvation. No, no, no. I realize salvation comes from Christ and I surrender in response to what I've already received. So the question I want to ask you is, are you laying your life before Christ as a gift and act of worship for him? In spite of what others might say, in spite of the, the negative words you may hear, he don't want you. He can't use you. You're not good enough. What can he do with you? Look where you've been. Look what you've done. As the song that Jeff sang so well from Zach Williams says, man, it's just about crying out, Father, I give it to you. You lift me up. You use this life for your glory. So if you have held back and thought giving him bits and pieces of yourself will do, I go to church a couple hours a week. I don't go on Wednesdays or Sunday nights because that's my time, but I'll go on Sunday mornings. Lord, there's your hour and a half here. It's all yours. You can do whatever you want in that hour and a half. But the rest is mine. That's my time. That's my family time. That's my time. You get your 10%, Lord, but another 90 of my finances, that's mine. And Jesus All he's calling for us is just to respond and say, when you look at the sacrifice of Christ, what makes sense as a sacrifice that we should give? Bits and pieces? Does that really make sense? Is that logical? If he gave all of himself, we give a little back? Or do we go, no, Lord, what makes sense is I'm all yours. And it it just fits. When we surrender ourselves to him, he will honor and commend us. And the freedom you will receive is unexplainable when we just submit. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are as we move to a time of invitation. As you begin to pray there where you are. In just a few moments, the band's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And my challenge to you, I pray, is the same that the Spirit of God has been working in your heart and mind already. First and foremost, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, maybe today would be the day of salvation for you. Maybe today you would say, Lord, I need to stop playing church. I need to confess my sins and receive Christ as my Lord and personal Savior. I know how much you've loved me. It is amazing what he gave for us. And so I pray that, Lord, you'd save me from my sins and I would live for you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to receive Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no sin too great he can't forgive. His grace will cover a multitude of sins. We just have to receive it. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here and you're a follower of Christ. And you're more like the disciples in this story than you are like Mary. And when you see others living with abandon, living with complete surrender and submission to Christ, you you scratch your head and you just think, man, what a waste. Oh, what they could be and who they could be. Maybe as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you would ask yourself the question, 
what's too great of a cost that you would pay? Maybe you would say, Lord, I need to surrender not bits and pieces, but all of me because you gave all for me. So maybe you would come in just a moment as you continue to pray. Maybe you'd come and bend your knees at the altar here and just taking time apart from everyone else around you and just say, Lord, I surrender. I'm going to pour my life out before you as an act of worship and you do with it whatever you want. I'm not going to just give you a little bit, Lord. I'm all in. Because, Lord, there's, there's nothing too great to give to you. Whatever God is doing this morning, I pray that you would respond, whether they're in your seats. But again, maybe you would come and say, Lord, my life is yours. I pray that you would respond as he leads. Father, move now as only you can. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Would you come? Are you ready to give it all to him as an act of worship? Maybe you'd come and lay it down and say, Lord, I'm all yours. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him as we sing in worship?